listening to Treasuring Scripture, a podcast of the weekly teaching ministry of Lebanon Baptist Church, Roswell, Georgia. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at LebanonBaptist.org. Father, we pause to thank you again for that salvation that we received, for your glorious gospel, for the saving faith that you have bestowed upon us. Help us now as we think in terms of passing that on, that you would help us to practically uh, understand what our role can be. And may this time together in your word be a catalyst for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple years ago, I was leading a group of people in the country where Jamie and Jess are working. And... uh, what we were trying to do and part of my strategy has been to try to replicate what Lebanon and Killian have done as we've partnered together to launch a team to reach a group of people. And so I travel around the United States and I speak in a lot of different churches and I talk about you guys. I talk about Lebanon and you guys are famous um, because what we're doing here is, is wonderful. Well, The majority of the people that we took on that trip were pastors because I wanted pastors to catch the vision for doing this, but also there were some other people that were interested in possibly working there as well. And there was a businessman that had come along on that trip. And on the last day of the trip, we were eating breakfast together and kind of talking about the past week and some things that he had seen and and learned. And, and, And as we're talking, he says... You know, I really see the need and admire what these folk here are doing, but I could just never do this. I don't think I laughed out loud, but at least I smiled and chuckled within. And my response to him, in essence, was, you just stepped in it. Because the first qualification to being a missionary is that you think you can't do it. All of us who are missionaries were at some time sitting in a pew just like you. The furthest thought in our mind was ever being a missionary. We were just kind of minding our own business, being a good church member, and God launched us. My goal this morning in this particular message is to recruit some of you into missions. And if you're sitting there right now saying, I couldn't do what Jamie and Jess did, you just stepped into it. Because that is the first step in becoming a missionary is realizing this is not me. I can't do it. And so what I want to talk about today from this text uh, that we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians is that God uses and chooses unlikely people. And mostly it's unlikely people that are accomplishing God's purpose on planet Earth. And so if you're here this morning and you're saying, I couldn't do that guess what? You just have taken the first step forward and possibly ending up on some mission field around the world. Now, as I do this recruiting exercise this morning, I do so with the blessing of our pastor, Brian, who's not with us. I didn't wait until he was out of town to do this behind his back. He is enthusiastic about this. In fact, as I've traveled the last couple of decades around the United States, spoken in probably hundreds of churches, there aren't a lot of pastors that think like Brian and our pastors do. Because most pastors are trying to gather people in and conserve. We have pastors that have an open hand and saying, we want to send. 
And that is kind of unusual in pastors because you're trying to build a church and run a church and you need warm bodies and you need people to be involved. The last thing you want is for people to leave. And it's the heartbreak of pastors when people leave a church. But we have a pastor who has as his ambition to launch people out. We want to be a sending church. And that's one of the things that drew me to this church was I saw that in the heart of our pastor. That we want to launch people out. You know, there's not a lot of pastors who would do what we did where we want to start a church over in Kennesaw. Just invite the church planner to come in and say, you know, recruit anybody you want and take them with you. That doesn't make any business sense to give away. But he had that heart. And as our, as our leadership sort of figured out what, what do we need to do with these facilities, they made the deliberate decision not to expand our building or build, big, build, big, build a bigger auditorium, but rather that this be a place where people come in the back door and we send them out the front door or vice versa. In other words, this needs to be a place where people come in, they're equipped, they're trained and launched out. And our ambition is not to grow into a mega church, but rather to be a church that is doing mega work all over the world. And so that is the DNA and that's the heart of, of, of what we are as a church. And it is counterintuitive. That's why the average pastor doesn't want to do this. They've got to keep the offerings up to pay the bills. And it doesn't make any sense to send somebody like Jamie and Jess out of here. I mean, at one time they were here highly active in ministering in this church, giving, putting in the offering plate. And now instead of being an asset, they become a liability because we're supporting them and we don't have their, their work here anymore. And so this just doesn't make any sense, does it? But when you have a pastor who has a mind that is beyond the four walls of one particular church and understands that it is the church and it is the great commission that ought to drive us, that we are able to do what we're doing here at Lebanon. So I want us to go to this passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Realizing that Brian spoke on this probably a couple of years or more ago, but I want to just refresh your memory on this and use this as an application for what we're going to be talking about this morning. The context here is the disunity in the local church, and, and Paul, as he writes to them, he says, you guys need to realize who you really are. Don't think you're big stuff. You're just common, ordinary, normal people. There's no reason for pride. There's no reason for someone to elevate themselves above another. And in the process of arguing that, he says in verse 26, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. God uses inferior people. God uses just normal people. And he uses unlikely people. In the first verse that we read here, he says, consider your calling. Now, in church world, we use that word, called into ministry. And so we think in terms of if you're going to be a pastor or a missionary, there has to be a call. What do we mean by that? What would we mean here as we think in terms of launching out more missionaries from this church? What is that call? 
Well, the call basically has two facets to it. One is to salvation, and secondly, to service. In a Greek dictionary, that basically a Greek dictionary just defines all of the Greek words that underscore or underlie all of the English words that we have, the Greek dictionary says that the word call means to urgently invite someone to accept a responsibility for a particular task. We think sometimes in terms of a calling simply be a call to salvation, or the flip side of it is we're called into ministry. But those are really two inseparable concepts. In other words, there are not some of us that are called to salvation and then we just get to sit in the pew. Or there are some people that are called to salvation and then they do service and they're a special elite group. We're called both to salvation and to service, every single one of us. So the real issue is simply geography. Where are we going to do that? The people that leave houses and lands, father and mother, and go someplace else, we call them missionaries. People that spend their time vocationally serving in a church, we call them pastors. So there are people that are called into that kind of ministry. But all of us are called. And we shouldn't really separate those two. Paul got the, 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 the call to both salvation and service at the same time when God knocked him off that horse on the way to Damascus. We're all called to do great commission work. So when we look for a calling, we're not looking for some mystical something or other to happen, or a dream that we have, or a feeling that we might come across us. We're not, we're not expecting a sign. We're not listening for a voice. You say, then how do I know whether I'm called? How do I know whether I ought to shift from, from serving here to maybe serving somewhere else? What is, how do I recognize God's calling? Well, there's basically two facets to it. One is there's an inner compulsion. There is something that starts to build up within you that says, I, like the Apostle Paul, I am compelled to preach. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. There's a compulsion that comes from within us. It's, it's an irresistible and undeniable desire. It's like Jeremiah who wrote that there was a burning in my bones. And that's sort of the inner side of this. And if there's anything mystical about it, simply that, that all of a sudden there's this stirring within you that I've got to do something. And if right now you're sort of happy in your career and you're busy putting together your life and you're raising your family, but yet there is that niggling within you that there may be something more. And you're hearing people like Jamie and Jess talk and you say, wow, maybe I could do something like that. That is an inner compulsion that God is putting in your heart. It's not normal. Normal people don't do this. But God may be working in your heart. And right now, it may be flat. And as I'm talking, you just don't even resonate at all with what I'm talking about. But who knows, maybe by the end of this sermon, or maybe next week or next year, God will bring you to a place in your life where there will start to be this inner compulsion to maybe do something different with your life. You've tried that, but maybe there's more. Maybe there's something that God could use you to do that you're not thinking of right now. But secondly, there is the affirmation of the church. It's one thing for me to simply say, I think I'm called into ministry, but it's another thing for those that know me well to affirm that. Sometimes we call that ordination, but basically it's for the church to say, yes, we recognize that. There was a day when in the missions world, 
in order to become a missionary, you had to pack up your bags, go off to Bible college or seminary, study there for a number of years. Then you could come back and you could be a missionary. Today, things have changed so much that we have incredible opportunities that we maybe did not have in the past. You say, I don't have my theology in place. Well, that's not a problem. That is a major issue that has to be addressed. You've got to know your theology because if you're going to go teach the Bible somewhere around the world, you have to know what you're talking about. But you don't necessarily have to go off to seminary. You don't necessarily have to go off to Bible college somewhere. And if you are starting to feel that stirring within your heart and a compulsion to maybe do more than what you have right now, that is the reason why you have pastors. Ephesians 4 says that they are here to equip you to do ministry. That's their job description. Their job is not to do ministry. Their job is to train you to do ministry. And so you need to be in communication with the pastors and simply say, you know what? God is working in my heart. Would you help me to evaluate where I am in this process? Because the first thing that we've got to think about is, do I know the Bible well enough? Have I studied formally the ideas and the concepts of exegesis and studying the Bible and, and, and do I know all of these things that I need to know because I'm going to teach people the Bible somewhere in the world. The second thing that we will look at as we tend to evaluate where you are and whether you're ready to go is what kind of ministry giftedness do you have? Or maybe what can we help you to develop to do? And you say, I've never preached a sermon in, your, in my life. We can help you to do that. I've never taught a Sunday school. We can help you to do that. I don't know how to evangelize them. We can help you to do that. That is our job as pastors is to equip saints to do ministry. And then the third area that we'd look at, we'd look at, first of all, the academic preparation. We'd look, secondly, at the ministry skills that you have. But then number three, we would look at your character or your godliness because, in essence, that is the foundational qualification for being in ministry. You may be the world's greatest preacher, and you may know your theology inside and out, but if you're a scoundrel, you can't go into ministry. And so character is so important. That's why the calling and the affirmation of the church is so important. I may think I'm pretty good, but other people that know me may take a look at me and say, no, you've got some character weaknesses there that we need to work on. And so you may not be ready to go to the mission field today. That's all right. It may be five, ten years before you're ever ready to go, but we can start that process and we can help to launch you in that direction. And I realize that in the secular world, in order to do a job, we're primarily looking at competency, but in Bible world, in church world, we're looking at a person's character. That's why the qualifications, 1 Timothy chapter 2, for a pastor are primarily character. It's who you are. And so the process of calling is simply this, that there is a bending towards something that I'm not presently doing right now, but then for you to integrate with the pastoral staff and for us to help you navigate through the next steps of what you might be able to take in order to be effective in missions, in ministry. For those of you that are businessmen, if you're going to hire somebody, you might start making a list that looks something like this. I want to hire somebody that's smart. I want to hire somebody that has some get up and go and has some strength to them. We just don't want somebody lethargic. And uh, we want somebody that, that is kind of well, well connected. And uh, that will help us as we try to expand our business. 
And that's the way we think in our secular mindset. But Jesus, uh, or Paul came along and he, he turned this thing on his head. He said, forget those things. Our text says that God chooses the foolish, the weak, and the insignificant. The bar is pretty low. And in the secular world, you're saying, wow, you've got to be this kind of a person. But God comes along and says, no, I don't want that kind of a person. I want this kind of a person. And the world measures greatness by many standards. It might be intelligence, wealth, prestige, or position. But God decided to put those things at the bottom. Instead, to put foolishness and weakness and insignificance at the top. He did not accept you as his child because you were brilliant, wealthy, intelligent, or powerful. Salvation came to you not because you had certain qualifications. And sometimes we think, wow, if we could get that person saved, think of how influential and how powerful and how much influence they would have in the gospel. God doesn't think that way. He's flipped this thing on the head. And you might say, well, I'm kind of offended by this. You mean... You mean all of us that are missionaries were were just kind of foolish, weak, and insignificant people? Well, yeah. But the caveat, because there are some of you that are exceptional. Notice he says, not many of you. So there's a couple of you that are not foolish, weak, and significant. And you can still be a missionary. But you know, the missionaries, and we're going to come back to this in just a few moments, that are oftentimes the most effective are the ones that are the weakest, that don't have it all together that are simply walking forward with the way that God has designed for them to go. Jesus chose men to be his disciples that we would have never asked to do that job. Fishermen who lacked education, who were rough, limited vocabulary, probably bad grammar, In fact, probably bad language to start off with. But they were part of his discipleship band. Matthew, who was basically a mercenary because he had sold his soul to the Roman government, was raising taxes from his own countrymen, a despised individual in their country because he was a traitor to their people. Or Simon the Zealot, who was a revolutionary, or in today's terminology, we might say that he's a domestic terrorist. He had that potential. Or the sons of thunder, and just by their name, we certainly understand they weren't refined or dignified. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, as people criticize this band of disciples later on when Jesus is gone, he says, they say, these are unlearned and ignorant people. But God, or Jesus used that band of unlearned and ignorant people to turn the world upside down, to formulate the church that we for 2,000 years have been celebrating. And it was that band of people that God used. Jesus prayed on one occasion. He said, I praise thee, Father, O, o, I praise thee, o Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst not hide these things, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and the intelligent and did disreveal them to babes. The Bible says that the greatest man who, has ever li- who ever lived apart from Jesus himself was John the Baptist. He had no formal education, no training, no trade, no profession, no money, no military rank, no political position, no social pedigree, no prestige. 
He was not impressive in his oratory. He dressed funny, ate bugs. This guy was not fodder for leadership. Yet Jesus says this, truly I say unto you, among those born of woman, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. I don't know about you, but this is kind of comforting to me. There's room for us mongrels. And it's not all about who I am and what I can do. God chooses the unlikely to accomplish his purposes. Moses was an introvert, stuttered, and a recluse. Jonah was a racist, hated people, but God sent him to the mission field. David was just a kid. Gideon was the least in his father's house. Rahab was a harlot. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was old. You know, it used to be that people went to the mission field in their 20s. The average age now, people going in our organization at least is around 35 to 37 years old. People are going to the mission field older. And some of you think, because, oh, I'm 40 years old, I'm 50 years old. I kind of escaped the draft. And you think, I, I, I'm beyond being a missionary. No, that, that's not necessarily the case anymore. Rahab was a prostitute. Samson was a womanizer. And I'm not condoning any of those sins. I'm simply saying God takes the riffraff of society and he makes them into people that are called of him to both serve and be saved. Jeremiah and Timothy were both young. Elijah was suicidal. Peter denied Jesus. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. And so God, as he has used people in the past and the stories that we learn of in the Bible, he was constantly picking up on people that were totally unlikely to be involved in serving and serving him. For a couple of decades or more, I served as director of a mission organization, and once or twice a year, we would intake new, new missionaries. And I never felt so um, insecure and uncertain of myself as it was when we were talking with people and helping them to decide whether to go to the mission field or not. And the reason I was so uncertain was simply because of this passage of Scripture that it's kind of hard for us to sit in judgment of a person and say, you're not polished enough. You don't dress well enough. You don't have enough skills. You don't have this or that. And it's easy for us to categorize and to put people into boxes. But oftentimes what I found was the people that we thought, well, let's just let them squeeze in because maybe they won't mess up too much, end up being the superstars on the mission field. And unfortunately, sometimes the superstars that we look at and we hire like that, and we say, wow, that guy's going to make a great missionary. They don't even raise their support. Never get to the mission field. And I hope that what you're getting here this morning is that all of you would think through this idea that, that when you look at missionaries or people in pastorates, we're not some kind of super saints up here on a pedestal. We're just plain old people like you. I still remember my first sermon. I was in Bible college, and uh, the church we were going to, uh, the pastor asked me to preach. And I figured, well, I guess I need to learn how to preach. And so I, I said, okay. And I started studying. He gave me like six weeks warning. And for six weeks, I had a knot in my stomach and was physically sick with anticipating that sermon because of stage fright and my own insecurity. Joan was, um, Joan and I were dating at the time, and she came that Sunday to hear me preach my first sermon. 
And she confessed later that she wrote back to her mom and dad, who were missionaries in Africa at the time. She wrote back to them and said, I really love this guy, but he's never going to be a preacher. (laughs) I'm a living testimony of the fact that God can take an insecure, non-communitive person and somehow use me in some way. I, I, in my last year of Bible college, I, was, I finally got to the, over this thing and I started preaching in a church and was kind of doing full pulpit supply. They didn't have a pastor. And they said, well, why don't you, why don't you, why don't you become our pastor? And so I candidated for them and went through the process. And it was just a little country church up a valley, a coal mining community. And uh, after, I, after I candidated, they, they turned me down. They didn't want me. I thought, I don't have a chance. I'm just an introvert. There's no reason for me to be in front of people. My preference would be to be in some cave right now. You know, as long as you have internet hookup, everything's good. But God, in his grace, reaches down to mongrels like me and allows me to be part of what he's doing. And what you see up here this morning is not me. It really isn't. There's no logical reason for me to be doing what I'm doing. But it's only because of this verse where God says, I'm going to take the weak and the insignificant and those that really don't have it all together. And so the question is, why does God do that? What is the reason for calling people that are totally unlikely to do his work? The answer is given to us here in the text. Verse 29 God chose what is, sorry, verse 29, so that, well, let me read verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that are so that, here's the reason why God does this, that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And in this passage, Paul reminds these Corinthians that they were not the elite, they were the lowly and the despised. And the reasons for their conflict, there really wasn't any reason because we're just all a bunch of mongrels. We're just plain old everyday people. And he brings their thoughts back to four kind of theological ideas here. In the next verse he says, he is the source of your life in Jesus Christ, who made, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, up until this point, I've been talking primarily to believers, to those of you that are secure in your faith. You know you followed Christ. You know that if you were to die right now, you'd go to heaven. But I want to shift gears for just a moment because there could be some in this room that don't have that assurance or don't have that security. And you're saying, I'm kind of looking at this thing of Christianity. I think maybe I'm a Christian, but I don't really know whether I am or not. This is a classic passage here that helps us to sort of crystallize this in our thinking because he says the things that come from God are things that we can't create in ourselves. We get from God wisdom. There are four things here. That wisdom that comes from God, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but he adds on to our human wisdom. I can't figure all this out on my own. It has to come from God. He is our righteousness. Keep it really simple. He makes us right with him. And I can't be making myself right with him. I can try to be good, but I'll never be good enough. 
And then he says, he is my sanctification. And that word is simply, probably the commonest word that we would affiliate with that is the word holy. He's made me holy. There's no way I can make me holy. And he's redeemed me, which simply means to buy something. I don't have enough payment. I don't have enough resources to pay for my salvation. And so here's the message of the Bible. For those of you that are still exploring Christianity and don't really know whether you're a Christian or not, is basically to come to the place where you accept that by grace you are saved. It's, it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, but by his workmanship. And so our salvation comes not because I can make myself holy, make myself righteous, make myself wise, or pay enough to redeem myself from my sins, from the slavery of my sin. I can't do that. And if you're here this morning and you're trying to establish your own righteousness and you're trying to be good enough, you're trying to stack up enough credits with God, it's just, you just can't do that. Why? Because that comes from God. And so he reminds the Corinthian church here that they have those things. There's no reason for you to boast because everything you have in Christ was given to you. You couldn't manufacture any of this. It didn't matter how smart or noble you were. And so here is the heart of the gospel that we are not creating within ourselves something is God that's creating us. So that, verse 31, as it is written, let, no one, let the one that boasts, boasts in the Lord. And he quotes from Jeremiah 9.23. If you were to take a look at the verses before and after, which I recommend that you do maybe this afternoon, look at the last part of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. He is just building this case That ministry and our salvation comes not because of who we are, but because of what God does in and through us. Charlie opened the letter and immediately realized that there had been a mistake. It was an invitation to preach at a famous London church with a view of becoming their pastor. And obviously this was an error on several reasons. No one in that in the cultured city of London would have considered him to be a pastor in the real sense of the word. Pastors in London were highly educated, socially sophisticated, culturally sensitive, well-dressed, well-groomed, well-mannered. Charlie was relatively uneducated, having no theological background, had neither formal nor informal training as a preacher, and on top of this, he was only 19 years old. So he wrote to the would-be host to clarify the problem of mistaken identity. But remarkably, the reply came back that there was no mistake made. So he caught a train to London, and the night before his sermon, he met with some young men in a hotel that told him of the mighty eloquence of the famous London preachers, which obviously intimidated Charlie even more. His first sermon was attended by 80 people in the auditorium of 1,200 seats. A young lady called him unimpressive in speech, poorly dressed, and comical in appearance. A journalist described his preparation for the job this way, one could scarcely imagine a more unpromising list of qualifications or rather disqualifications for public favor. So Charlie was obviously way out of his league preaching in London, but to his great surprise he was offered a call to be the pastor of the church. He was so sure that he would be a disappointment to them that he insisted that the arrangement be considered on a three-month-long probation to give the church a way out of their blunder of calling him. Three months later, the auditorium of 1,200 seats would have standing room only, the regular attendance of 3,000 people each Sunday coming to hear the young Charles Spurgeon 
preach the Word of God. The church added 14,000 new members in 38 years. His sermons sold 25,000 copies every week. By the way, the lady who deemed him unimpressive and comical in experience, in appearance, would become his wife. (laughs) And today we still talk about Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, maybe beyond uh, Billy Graham, the most famous name that those of us in church world would, would identify with. A congregation that impacted the world. And we still read his sermons and still talk about Charles Spurgeon. But here's what Charles Spurgeon said. The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be the converts of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist of the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die. And never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the Word of God to give it power to convert the soul. Charles Spurgeon started off that way, the most unlikely person to be the pastor of that church. But you know what? God can do that same thing for anybody here in this room. God uses the unlikely to accomplish his purposes. And you may be sitting here thinking, I'm the most unlikely to ever be a missionary. You may have just stepped in it. Here's my challenge. Maybe some of you want to take this to another level. Here's a homework assignment. If you sort of want to, I dare you, to get a bit more serious in pursuing this. Garrett challenged me to write this devotional, and so I, I wrote it. This is just off the press here, not very long. But it's, it's, the, the title of this pamphlet is Focus, A One-Week Journey to Focus Your Mission in Life. It's, it's basically a one-week devotional. So every morning as you have your devotional, whatever you normally do, maybe set it aside for one week. And there's a passage of Scripture with some questions to answer out of it. I dare you to try that. I've left a bunch of them up here on the stage, and if you'd like to take one, feel free to do that. To carve out a week of time where you're going to focus on your mission in life. What is your real purpose for being here? And you might be surprised at the end of the day that God indeed will help you to follow in the footsteps of Jamie and Jess. And we're going to keep working on this here at Lebanon because we believe that God uses unlikely people and that there is a bunch of people here yet in this congregation that need to be launched out of this place to the places around the world. And we're here to help you with that process. But if you're sitting here this morning and saying, not me, you might just want to bite your tongue. It very well could be you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. I'm wondering if perhaps there is somebody here that, that when I started talking about how you become a Christian, you said, well, that's me. And I don't really know for sure that I'm a Christian. But this morning, I would like to make sure And I didn't quite understand what you were talking about there with these big words, righteousness and sanctification and all the rest of that. But I'd like to talk with somebody afterwards to make sure that I'm right with God. Is there anybody like that here this morning? You just sort of pop your hand up, indicate to me that you'd like to to meet with me or one of the other pastors afterwards. It'd be a shame for us as a church to send people all the way around the world, but yet not help people that are right here in our midst. 
our hearts and doors are always open for those of you that are looking into solidifying that relationship with God. But there's also this part of the invitation. Perhaps you're here and there's just kind of this burdening on your heart, an unsettledness to say, I, I don't know that my life work right now is really my life work. Maybe there's something more. My challenge to you would be in the coming days, approach one of the pastors here. And let's just start the conversation. It doesn't mean you're going to buy an airplane ticket next week. But maybe we can help you progress in the direction that God has for you. Father, I pray that you would use Lebanon Baptist Church to be a launching pad for hundreds of people in the days ahead to populate the nations of the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Treasuring Scripture. It's our desire that every Christian treasure God's Word in their heart. To follow our podcast, please hit the subscribe button. If you're interested in learning more about our church, please visit LebanonBaptist.org.